So it's all here. The story of our time with the bar call. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkoff. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. Lisa Napoli is a longtime broadcast journalist and the author of four books. I talked to her about her latest, Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, the extraordinary story of the founding mothers of NPR and the state of journalism today. Lisa Napoli, welcome to With the Bark Off, and congratulations on Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, the extraordinary story of the founding mothers of NPR. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm doing this interview from the LBJ Presidential Library, and just literally yards from where I'm sitting is one of the pens that LBJ used to sign the National Broadcasting Act into law in 1967. But, but so before we get into the subjects of your book, can you just talk about why public media was necessary in American life in the late 1960s? Sure. You know, it's hard for us to imagine a time not that long ago when there were three networks that dominated the media landscape. And that was both with television and radio. Of course, they'd begun as radio networks and as TV came on, expanded. And television, of course, eclipsed radio and just took over the American mindshare. And in the 60s, there was a movement among some people, even before President Johnson signed the act, uh, to figure out how to counterbalance this pervasive force of these three networks that dominated the airwaves. And, uh, you know, there's a famous speech uh, by the FCC commissioner in the early 60s calling television a vast wasteland. Uh, and there was a you know, big fear about media uh just couch potato dumb. Uh, and, and basically, that gave way to the Public Broadcasting Act, which is interesting to note uh, that radio wasn't part of the initial Public Television Act, because the, the big concern was about the, the rise and the control over the mindshare of television on the American people. So was radio an afterthought, Lisa? It was. It was literally pasted into the act. I'm sure you have the documents there. Mm -hmm. I would love to see the actual ones. But um, yeah, there were a group of people who were working in non-commercial radio around the country. And at that time, it was extremely modest. They were little stations licensed usually to uh, educational institutions. And they had very modest budgets. They probably didn't have full-time staff, um, paid staff at all in some cases. I think it was under $25,000 was the the usual budget for a station, a radio station that was educational. And basically, it was these people who ran these stations who said, wait, wait, we have to include radio in this public broadcasting act, public television act. And it literally was pasted in at the last minute. This book is about Susan Stamberg, Linda Wertheimer, Nina Totenberg, and Koki Roberts, public radio stalwarts who are the matriarchs of national public radio, NPR. Can you talk briefly about each of these women and how they found their way to NPR? 
Sure. And that's the joy of this book was braiding together this history of this vaunted institution, the early history of this vaunted institution that was created almost accidentally with these four women who accidentally worked their way into the system as it was rising up and becoming a force. Susan Stamberg had worked in educational radio really literally accidentally because she made a phone call to a friend while she was looking to escape a job as a typist and got a job at early NPR. She'd just come back from having her first and only child and wanted to work in radio and got a job as a production assistant at NPR in 1971. Linda Wertheimer had moved to D.C. because she married a man who was a lawyer there, a lobbyist, and uh, she wanted to find work in radio and literally got a job that wound up being the director behind the scenes of this new show, All Things Considered, the first offering of NPR. Nina Totenberg came a few years later. She had been running around D.C. as a journeywoman reporter, reporting on whatever anybody assigned her for whatever publication she could get a job with. And one of those publications went out of business and she got a job at this place that nobody had ever heard of, NPR. And then Koki Roberts in 1978 came back to D.C. with her husband, who was a correspondent for The New York Times, also looking for work, couldn't find it. People wouldn't hire women. And this upstart, you know, still it was it was new enough. It wasn't even 10 yet. Uh, brought her in as a contractor because they needed more people to just run around and act as reporters, which was something that was not easy for women to do um, and was not possible for women to do in the 60s and before. So they, they, they all seem to wind up at NPR largely accidentally. Accidentally, And that's what I love about this story, because, you know, we always are looking, at least I am in my life, for that combustible moment, you know, how you fall in love or find the best job or create something big. I covered the Internet for many years for The New York Times, and we were always looking at why did that person make it and that person didn't. And a lot of it, yes, a lot of it is hard work and a great idea, but a lot of it is that combustible moment in time that we found in this case in, 19, in the 1970s with this new network that was finding its sea legs and these women happened to enter that system and exert themselves in a way that that made their careers but also helped make NPR what it became. So they wind up at NPR at a very different time for women in this country. What did they want from their careers? Well, it's interesting. Each of them had come from a very different place and each of them entered their profession professional lives in, in a very different way. Koki famously, and she's probably the most famous of mm. the four women, um, She, when she got out of Wellesley in the 60s, her prevailing ambition was to get her boyfriend to marry her, <laughs> <laughs> which was not unlike many women at that time. Uh, certainly women of a, a certain station in life could afford to want only to marry their boyfriends uh, and not worry about making an income to you know, add to the family till. Uh, Susan Stamberg uh, also married out of not long after college, but she was one of five people in her graduating class at Barnard, where she'd gone on scholarship, who didn't graduate with a engagement ring on her mm. finger. Still, she got married. She wanted to find meaningful work, couldn't. She was a typist um, and wanted more. 
And basically, she back-ended her way into the system. Uh, Nina was the one who was most ferociously devoted to becoming a reporter from an earlier age. Uh, and she'd even dropped out of school to make her way as a reporter. And Linda always, you know, from her youth in New Mexico, daughter of a grocer, had seen um, or had heard Edward R. Murrow, first on the radio, then on television, and wanted to be his secretary. <laughs> and it was after she saw Pauline Frederick, who was a pioneering correspondent in her day, who predates these women, uh, she got to cover the UN. She actually covered the formation of the UN and covered it for many years. Uh, when Linda saw her on TV, she said, hey, wait, I don't want to just be the secretary. I want to be that woman on TV. Mm -hmm. So they each came into it from different vantage points. Um, and of course, all wound up being dear friends and riding out their careers at a place they never probably imagined they would when they started out. And shaping what has become and this shaping. this uh, national treasure in so yes, many ways. Exactly. You, you quote Nina Totenberg, Lisa, in the beginning of the book, uh, who is asked by an interviewer how she feels when younger women in journalism have no idea how rough things were in, quote, the bad old days. And she replies, Murder comes to mind. <laughs> so talk about what those bad old days were like for women in journalism. Well, you know, and it was true in every profession and in any level of every profession that women were able to enter. There was rampant discrimination. Uh, you know, if you could even get in the door in the first place, that was one hurdle. And once you got in the door, you might be subjected to all sorts of unbelievable behavior, unbelievable in this day and age that a man could speak to you in a certain way or chase you around a desk or grope you and think he could get away with it. So it was various levels of abuse, but it was abuse and women were accustomed to it, sadly. Uh, and these women were not exempt from mm. that, sadly. So it was it wasn't just journalism, but it was certainly rampant in journalism. Was it any worse in journalism than it was in other parts of of uh, American life? Well, or was it, was it just reflective of what was going on generally, Lisa? Yeah, I would I would just hazard a guess that it was general. I mean, it's it, you have to imagine that there was a time in our nation when job ads were segregated. Women could apply for these jobs. Men could apply for these jobs. Same thing with race as well. Mm. And uh, that is hard for us to imagine today, especially with all the dialogues that we're having about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm. Uh, it was as bad as things can be today. They were way worse way back when, not way back when, not that long ago. But I think in every level of society, it was a hurdle for women. Of course, these women entered the workforce with a, a certain large amount of privilege, even the two women who had come from more working class roots, because they did get scholarships to right. go to college. Not every woman, of course, could imagine being educated at that time. It was just, a, it was a hardship for, for women to go to school financially. And then it was also not, not the societal norm. So I think every profession had its own issues. Uh, but what was startling for me as a woman in her 50s who started working in the 80s, where there were all kinds of different sorts of impediments and dialogues going on. You know, when I was coming up, it was about the glass ceiling. Could you mm. break through the glass ceiling and have a family too? That was something that the women I write about in this book didn't even, it didn't even it wasn't even an issue for them because they they knew that prevailing 
for the prevailing force was you are going to get out and get married. Mm-hmm. That was the ultimate goal. That was the goal. Yeah. 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 It, the, the women's rights movement uh, began to gain steam in the 1970s. And you write, just as the world of Hollywood began to smack of female power, reflecting society's transpositions, subservient June Cleaver, replaced by crusty Maud, Gidget transformed into Norma Ray, so too did the surreality of broadcast journalism begin to change. So how does it begin to change? Well, you know, that's what we say today. If you give someone a microphone who's not used to having it and they see the world or, or a camera or a pen and they look at the world where you and I are going to naturally look at the world differently um, because of where we've come from and, and where we've been. And what happened was these women got their hands on microphones and they started asking questions differently than men would just mm. because of their wiring um, and and where they'd come from. You know, Cokie would look at the world differently as the daughter of a congressman and later a congresswoman. Her mother became a congresswoman after her father died. Then Nina would as the daughter of a concert violinist who is enormously accomplished. Then Susan Wood, whose father was a salesman who hadn't gone to college mm. and who, you know, Linda, the, the grocer's daughter. So each of each of us brings to our work a different perspective. And that's why it was so important that women got their hands on the microphones um, because they were able to that informed how they asked questions, the kinds of mm. questions that they asked. And that informed the the dialogue that was put out for the people to consume. And that, of course, changes the dialogue of me as a media consumer because I'm hearing something different, a different perspective. Mm. So, yeah. T- yeah. T- t- how, so that's what's happening in front of the microphone. What's happening behind the scenes with these four women? How are they rallying around each other and supporting one another as they begin their rise at NPR? Well, that was also so interesting because they banded together and created what they called an old girls network. They saw in D.C. especially that there was this old boys network and they saw that in this profession there was an old boys network. There are very few women allowed to enter that profession. And now that they had these jobs, they not only wanted to help one another and help people coming into the system uh, and to help bolster the system. Uh, they were fiercely involved with the unionization of NPR and and uh, arguing for the rights of employees to get better pay and better hours, better working conditions. Um, so they were concerned about each other, their their colleagues and the bigger picture. And so they would have a lunch, I think it was every month or so, where women would get together and they would, you know, if somebody needed something, they would help personally or professionally. They love to fix people up too. So it wasn't just Hmm. in the professional forum. They were um, just, you know, very interested in, in this network and literal network of each other and, and expanding that and supporting one another, which is, unfortunately, you know, unique. I think today a lot mm. a lot of people, not to generalize, are more ferocious and more competitive. And they were competitive with each other in a friendly way, but they were also very eager to make sure that their voices as a block were continued, you know, to be to be heard. So what does their competitiveness look like? Well, you know, um I've been one reviewer criticized this book for not amping up the critic the uh the 
discussion of their competitiveness, but frankly, they really didn't have much of competitiveness with each other because they were working together. Mm. In the instance of Linda and Koki, Linda had um, started behind the scenes as a director, sort of appointed herself consumer affairs reporter, which was a big issue in the 70s in the movement of Ralph Nader, and then um, worked her way into covering Congress. And then Koki Roberts walks in the door, as Linda called her, born in the boiler room, Koki Roberts. (laughs) And she should have been freaked out. And she was a little freaked out. But the truth is that Koki reached over to her and they and Koki really initially didn't want to cover Congress because she Mm -hmm. had been born in the boiler room. She was done with that. So the idea that these two women joined forces and decided to work together um, to cover this vaunted institution that didn't get that much coverage in broadcasting because there wasn't that much time, they were able to sort of tag team each other, both personally and professionally. If they needed help behind the scenes, they'd cover for one another. They'd go out into the field and take different tacks. And uh, they made it, they made a name for themselves as a duo, really. And that's that's pretty remarkable because it's not like somebody said, you two are a duo. Uh, They anointed themselves this duo and uh, you know, made names for themselves and changed the dialogue too. People had not heard women. Nancy Dickerson, a, a, an ally of President Johnson's aside, she had worked in earlier in the 60s on television, but it wasn't common for people to hear women talking about politics uh, and to hear these two women not only talking about politics, but talking about it with each other mm. uh, really gave people a different sense of women and give women a different sense of themselves and how they could participate. So the the the, the, uh, the sum of the parts becomes uh, greater than the what was she, I just t- totally lost that, Lisa, the uh, but. It's, it's, it's a bigger, it's bigger than, bigger than us. You know, it was bigger than all of us. It was a recognition that you and they didn't do what they were doing thinking, oh, we're changing the dialogue, but they would go out into the field and people would say to them, Hey, we saw you on PBS last night. Cause they got picked up by a PBS show, um, called the lawmakers. And they'd say, you know, w- women and men would say, you know, wow, you are terrific and you're making things change just by doing what you're doing so the they, they got a sense the of it. Greater, greater than the sum of its parts that's yes. it that's there it. you go yes. that's, that's the uh, expression i was groping for <laughs> <laughs> we think of uh, npr today as a fixture in american media but but i was surprised to read that npr struggled for much of its early history how did yes. npr struggle and how did it find its footing well, that's what I, my last book was about, the creation of CNN. And I love these origin stories because it, it, it's so important to see that something, an entity and a person don't come out fully formed and famous, you know, that there's a backstory to it. And in NPR's case, it was first the backstory that it almost didn't get included. Radio almost didn't get included in that public broadcasting act. And when it did, it was a minuscule amount of money. And the people who were charged with creating it basically didn't know what the heck they were going to do. They sat Mm -hmm. around and they thought, well, what would a national public radio network look like? And then from there, they kept experimenting and adding to it. And, and that's what, um, you know, the, the, the staying power and the idea that these little stations around the country were signing on and, and 
recognizing that there was a power in this national force uh, and wanting to participate in it. And FM radio, it's also a story about the rise of technology, as most of the books I've written are ultimately, as a former technology reporter, FM radio wasn't a thing. Um, It was around, it was marginalized. And as more and more radios were built with the capacity to tune in FM radio, then, then the stations got more listeners. As they got better transmitters, they got more listeners. So it really is these these stories of these women staying with this place that not many people were listening to to start with that had very terrible budgets. Um, and and it, as you know, probably it's very hard to be a reporter about something uh, when you're working for an underdog. When you're working for the New York Times, you can break stories all you want, but right. you know you have to work really hard to get people's trust and interest in talking with you when you're working for a place when people say, what's what's NPR? What is that? What do, who do you who are you calling from? So all of those things conspired together to get NPR to a point where more and more people were hearing it. And then the third president, Frank Mankiewicz, came in and he elevated it to a whole other level mm. um, because he was this vaunted political consultant, man about Washington, and he had friends all over D.C. And he brought it to a new level and then almost destroyed it by overspending, which is a whole other part of this story. Was was there a turning point, one sort of marked inflection point when NPR becomes the stalwart it is today? It isn't like MP, uh, I'm sorry, like CNN, where you know you have the Gulf War milestones along the way, Challenger, Tiananmen Square, and then the Gulf War that really um, solidified for people that this was a force. Although it is similar in the sense that cable was rising up, just like FM radio was rising up. Uh, so I don't think I, I, if you talk to people who were around who might have listened to Watergate hearings on NPR at the time. I think that showed people, this is of course all pre-C-SPAN when Mm. you could just tune in anywhere. Um, Now you can tune in anywhere you want, but C-SPAN elevated things to a different level because finally governance was exhibited on television. Uh, But before that you had NPR broadcasting um, hearings and uh, of various sorts, Watergate being notable, and showing people what it was like to peer behind the curtain in Washington that most regular people could not do uh, because just the media just didn't allow for that. Mm. But no, I don't think that there was a one, from what I've seen, um, there wasn't one moment in time. It was really a gradual ramp up. We lost Cokie Roberts a few years ago. Cokie Roberts was a, a, a friend of mine and a friend of this institution's. Yes. But she was the breakout star of the women you write about. What made Cokie Roberts so unique? Well, just to your point, too, I have to say that President Johnson and his wife did appear at Cokie's and her sister's weddings and that uh, Cokie's father, Hale Boggs, and later her mother, Lindy Boggs, were dear friends of the Johnsons and so um, and had been for for years and years in Congress as their stars all ascended. Now, uh, Cokie is just an exceptional force, uh, you know, once in a lifetime, does someone come along who is able to have the discourse about uh, politics that she was able to do in a way that was so conversational and accessible to people. Uh, Again, now today, there's 
not to diminish anybody who does it. It's a dime a dozen, this, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking of everything that goes on on the Hill. But when Cokie was doing it, it was rare and it was incredibly rare for a woman to do it. And as Brinkley said, when they hired her for his show on ABC um, in the late 80s, they were looking for a woman voice. Um, He said, and today you probably couldn't say this and get away with it. She was the total package. She looked good. She sounded good. She knew her stuff. She knew her stuff better than anybody. And she had this gift of being able to talk about it for the masses that um, most people don't. She also had the ability, as she said, to know when to sit back and know when to interject. And that for a woman at that time in particular was extremely important because people were getting used to the idea of women on these chat shows, uh, interjecting their thoughts and observations. But she really, what an amazing force to think that at one point her one ambition was to get married and have kids, which she did successfully, had beautiful children, beautiful grandchildren. And then when she decided she needed to work and wanted to work, um, couldn't find work, and then back-ended to this place, NPR, that was kind of, you know, still on its way up and was so great at it that she was identified for television. And then from there, she graduated to writing books, which, of course, became immediate bestsellers, speaking all over the world, becoming a public service advocate for children later in her life. Uh, She was devoutly Catholic and deeply involved with her faith. And um, what reading about her just is exhausting. I mean, she worked until the very end of her life tirelessly in every aspect of her life, um, personally and professionally. Uh, She was she was a dynamo. I wish I wish I would have known her. And I, I will say that it was necessary for a woman in broadcast journalism uh, when when these women were coming up to work harder than their male counterparts. But I will say, having known Koki, she had that work ethic till the very end. She simply worked harder than everyone else. Oh, yeah. No, in fact, even Nina had said to me when I first uh, got her to agree to talk to me for this book um, that you know they, she would worry about Koki. I actually said, Nina, why have you not written a book? And she said, well, I saw what Koki did. And um, the idea that Koki was working so hard when she was ill and didn't have to, have to. I mean, anybody with passion knows that you have to. You can't, you know, great painters work until the, their last breath. Nina Totenberg's father, the violinist, worked until his dying breath. Uh, he was helping people, uh, mentor people who were pupils of his in music. I mean, it's it's ineffable. It's hard for people who don't understand that Mm -hmm. passion. But she, as you know, had it. How do Susan Stamberg, Linda Wertheimer, and Nina Totenberg look upon the situation for women in America today in the wake of the Me Too movement? Is there, do they see equality in broadcast journalism today? Oh, I think, I mean, they're clearly aware that the world that women are entering is completely different than the world that they entered. And, you know, they would humbly say, yes, we suffered, so you all don't have to. Uh, but but I think they, you know, they know that it's not perfect for sure, mm. but they definitely, it's it's unrecognizable when you look at what they had walked into when they began working. Absolutely. One of the things that that surprises me, given its almost matriarchal origins at NPR, is that NPR would fall into a Me Too scandal. How do you explain that? 
Well, you know, it's funny. It, I always say about these four women, if they had wanted at any moment in time to run the show, to run NPR, they could have because they were such good, big thinkers. Not everybody's a great producer or editor, but they could have done it and they didn't do it. And it's hard to imagine what would have happened if they had, if they were running the show mm. from the very beginning, if they had stood up and said, I want to be the producer or in charge. I, I had an occasion a few weeks ago to talk with Margaret Lowe, who was an early NPR producer in the 80s, who rose to become top management at NPR. And, you know, I was thinking if she'd been around 10 years earlier, she could have run the show up until now. She could still be in, in the seat. Uh, so it's hard to know for sure what exactly goes on. But I think it just speaks to the fact that uh, until very recently, it was still mostly men who were running the show, literally every show, um, be it a literal radio show, radio network, uh, banks, you know, the nation. Um, but now we're seeing women in more dominant positions. Hopefully that kind of thing won't happen. I, I don't really, I only know what I read about what happened at NPR with its Me Too situation. But sadly, nothing ever surprises me because mm. people are volatile. Um, you know, there's, there's deep, yeah, I, I don't know what happened there, but I do know that if, if Susan had been in charge, it pro that probably would not have happened. Not question. Uh, has the world progressed as much as Susan, Linda, and Nina would have hoped and expected when they helped to found NPR back in the 1960s and early 70s? I don't know that the world has, um, but certainly in this nation, for a certain class of person who is able to get an education or is privileged to, to expect to be able to get a certain education, uh, I didn't come from that world. So mm -hmm. I, I consider myself extremely lucky that I was able to go away to school. My mother mortgaged herself to the hilt so that I could go to a private college. Um, so I, I think it depends on your worldview, but it doesn't seem to me that the you know women are are excelling um, in terms of equality everywhere on this earth, but certainly in this nation and in journalism, it's the, the situation is much, much improved. Well, I want to go back to where we began this interview um, and talk about why we need public radio. Uh, inevitably, we hear uh, threats every few years from, from Congress saying that they're going to quit f uh, funding public broadcasting. But since public broadcasting began in the late 1960s, there has been an explosion in the media landscape. We've seen the, the proliferation and fragmentation of, of media. Why is public broadcasting needed in American life today? I think a multiplicity of voices are needed for every every aspect of society. And I think, you know, it is the finances of public media. I know more about public radio uh, than I do about public television. But the finances of public radio are murky. People don't really understand how to wade through the complexity of the system. There are some stations around the nation that raise tens of millions of dollars, both in advertising and in um, underwriting. I'm sorry, uh, underwriting, which they call advertising, which they call underwriting and pledges from people who are supporters. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the system is a complex one. Congressional 
money, the, the government's money in public radio is much smaller than people think. It usually goes to help individual stations that are underserved. Uh, so it, it's, it's a murky force. There was a great book written about it 20 years ago. I wish James Ledbetter would update it about the finances. Mm-hmm. But to your question, I think, you know, it always, non-commercial radio, uh, non-commercial anything is important, uh, but but it's really more the diversity of of viewpoints and opinions and the commitment to telling stories that are different than the ones that you hear in other places. The wor- the media landscape is so different today mm. than it was when public radio started, uh, when than when CNN started, and uh, I can't personally grok that system. I personally can't consume it all. I find it overwhelming. Mm. Um, and, and you could root out when I started in journalism, you, the, the maxim was, do you give people what they want to know or what they need to know? And now I could just only listen to hockey news if that's all I wanted to listen to. And so, you know, it seems to me that public broadcasting does a really good job of, you know, a, a diversity of a point of opinions and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't even really know, I guess I should say, I don't really know how to answer that question except to say that we need as many voices as we can get. I feel uncomfortable answering that question because I don't mean to sound like a booster of public radio because I really worked hard to tell this story in a way that shows that I, you know, I, I was not authorized by NPR and, I, you know, where the system is at today isn't what was compelling for me and it's actually troubling to me where all media are today so we we talked about what the media landscape looked like when the the public broadcasting act was signed into law by president johnson in 1967 there were three television networks you said nbc cbs and abc until the advent of pbs and and one of the reasons that we were a more united country at that time is because people tuned into walter cronkite every night and and Huntley Brinkley, and, and there was there was not this proliferation of news. One of your other books uh, that you mentioned earlier, Lisa, is Up All Night about the, uh, the the evolution of CNN. But I wonder if you could comment on what the proliferation of media has done to the the, the news um, uh, environment and and how it's divided our country. Oh, it's it's terrible how it's factionalized us. But to your earlier point, I don't know that it was necessarily better in the old days. It was definitely more unifying. You know, my great example of that and only people of a certain age will remember this is, you know, when they played Wizard of Oz on television on a Sunday once a year, it was a big deal because everybody was together watching it. Right. Or if, you know, certain variety shows, certainly the Ed Sullivan era of entertainment when people splashed big on his show and the whole nation was watching. Of course, the downsides of all of that are that there were just this very, you know, singularly uh, homogenized voices were usually delivered in in those media, both in entertainment and in news. Um, But yeah, today I look at the world today. I can't listen. I can't tune in. I have a really hard time. I'm overwhelmed with the, the tide of information and wading through what's real and what's not and what's opinion and what's not. And that's why I've loved writing these two books, because for me, as a longtime journalist, reconciling how we got to this climate that we're in today, I covered the, the rise of the web at the New York Times. And, 
And looking at how at this ecosystem of radio, then cable, then the web and the Internet and this digital explosion, you really get a fine sense and I use fine in a, <laughs> you get a, a, an exacting sense of how media broke down. Yes, in many ways it expanded because finally there were other voices that were included. But um, you see the breakdown, the, the celebrity nature of news. Um, instead of being about news, it was about me building my brand and having a podcast and a column and a book and all those things. And Cokie Roberts, to many people, exemplified that. And mm. she was criticized for that when when that was happening for her in the 90s. Now, you'd be dumb if you were a, a, a named journalist who uh, didn't have all of those things. So I, I really, uh, it, it's, it's so troubling and so complex where we are now sorting through information. Again, even before there was broadcasting, there were concerns about trusting the information we got. Newspapers, which newspaper you read sort of signified what your political stance might be. Then radio came along, then television came along, then cable came along, and it's just eradicated uh, everything. And yet it also, paradoxically, illuminated everything because mm, now mm. I can go on the web and listen to what's going on in Bhutan or Botswana uh, and find out more. Um, but how to wade through it, it makes us all, it makes the fine point that we all need to know better how to consume media. And I wish we could teach media literacy to people, uh, young people, so they understood what they're getting when they tune in. But it's a complex, it's not a black or white right. situation at all. I wish I wish it could be that simple. Can we overcome the divisions that result from the fragmentation of media? Oh, gosh. Well, perhaps by going outside and getting to know our neighbors and seeing, I try to be very involved in the community around me, the good and the bad of it. And, uh, you know, there are people who I disagree with about certain things, but we all live in the same place. So let's all work together. Maybe that's our biggest hope. And of course, the children are our biggest hope. But after this last year, it's such a scary thought not to be negative and not that's that's beyond my pay grade i just love this media history and looking at it because i think in examining his in examining history of all sorts that's why i love the presidential libraries mm. to step in and see um how things were and the challenges that the people who came before us had is you know shows us that the really the, the issues keep coming up over and over again they get refined they hopefully get a little better they get refined um sometimes they get worse mm. but history is so so essential you cover four broadcast legends in this book is the state of journalism better today than when these women entered the profession in the late 1960s <sighs> Well, in the sense that there's more opportunity and there's more opportunity for more people. Um, yes, I think in that sense, it's great. More people can have microphones or pens or cameras, uh, but it's led to the dissolution of trust that you, you talked about a few minutes ago. So it's a different, different world. And the women themselves said that uh, and say that time and again. They can't imagine working in the world where they had to triage their Twitter account and 24-7 news. People at NPR freaked out when they added a morning show after they'd finally 
finally gotten sort of in the groove with their afternoon show. The idea that they had to feed uh, stories to both of those shows was so impossibly overwhelming to them. So imagine now, um, they, well, they, they can't imagine now. They've, I've heard them say it. Wow. Podcast, Twitter. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a noisy world that we live in. The book is Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, The Extraordinary Story of the Founding Mothers of NPR, and the author is Lisa Napoli. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for having me. I was so delighted that you asked. My thanks to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and as always, to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.